0: Early voting is open in Ohio, which means it's effectively election day each and every day straight on up to the actual election day on November 3rd. If you're voting absentee, you should be getting your ballots any day now, and you may have already received them. But just because we're voting doesn't mean that the relentless chaos of American healthcare politics has taken a break. Far from it. We have spikes in COVID positive rates across the country, including here in Ohio, but also a governor who appears poised to loosen restrictions that have kept those rates low for months. We have a US president still presumably COVID positive who's holding political rallies on the White House lawn, and we have a judge who promises to overturn Roe versus Wade beginning a Supreme Court confirmation just weeks before the election. Here in Ohio as we'll be discussing next week, we have a major announcement about big changes coming to Ohio's Medicaid program. So there's no shortage of topics to discuss. This is Prognosis Ohio. I'm your host Dan Skinner. Welcome back, folks. Today's episode is the final installment of our 2020 Candidates series. If you haven't done so already, we hope you'll go back and listen to some of the past episodes in this series. If you do, you'll learn about some of the candidates who have been most focal in making health and healthcare issues a focus of their campaigns. You can find them all on prognosisohio.com. On today's episode, I talk with Kristen Boggs, state representative for House District 18, which happens to be my district, and who is also assistant minority leader in the House. Listeners may remember that I talked a few months ago with Boggs' colleague, minority leader and Representative Amelia Sykes, about the efforts by Democrats in the General Assembly to declare racism a public health crisis. In my conversation with Representative Boggs, we returned to that question, but we also hit on a wide range of other issues, from policing and racism, to the consequences for Ohioans if the Supreme Court overturns the Affordable Care Act, or long-standing precedent such as Roe v. Wade. We also shine a particular light on the important and increasingly concerning issue of domestic violence. As we wrap up this candidate series, I want to remind listeners that on Tuesday, October 20th, from 7 to 8.30 p.m., we're going to be holding our first live Prognosis Ohio event via Facebook Live. We're excited that David Pepper, chairman of the Ohio Democratic Party, will be joining us to talk about the stakes for health care in Ohio in the 2020 election. We'll also be talking about the state of reproductive politics in Ohio with Susan Tebbin of the Ohio Capital Journal and Jacqueline Serpico, a JD candidate at the Moritz College of Law at OSU and an advocate for reproductive rights. In addition, we'll be inviting some past guests from the show, including a range of candidates who are hoping will stop by and give us an update on their campaigns as we approach Election Day. To be in the loop on all of this, like us on Facebook or reach out by email at prognosisohio at gmail.com if you'd like to find out how to join the event. Oh, and the first 20 visitors to log into the event will get a free Prognosis Ohio t-shirt. We'll be premiering them live at the event, though you may have already caught a glimpse of the cool design on social media. Speaking of social media, in addition to subscribing to the podcast, please follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook, etc., etc. Okay, now to the show. After graduating from the Cleveland Marshall College of Law, Representative Kristen Boggs joined the office of the Attorney General, serving as an assistant attorney general for nearly 10 years. In the Attorney General's office, Boggs assisted some of Ohio's most vulnerable populations in recovering from crimes of financial exploitation and physical abuse. Along with her long-standing time at public service, policy, and legal issues, Boggs has served as a board member for the American Constitution Society since 2010. She volunteered as a court-appointed special advocate for Franklin County, and she was a working committee member of the Ohio Women's Bar Association 2013 Leadership Institute. Since 2016, Boggs has represented the 18th House District, which includes parts of Columbus, Bexley, Grandview Heights, as well as parts of central Franklin County. She's currently assistant minority leader of the House Democrats. Uh, Representative Kristen Boggs, thanks so much for being on the show.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: Yeah, so I've wanted to have you on for quite a while. You are my representative, um, which is exciting. I guess I want to start with a really big question, um, obviously. So listeners should know we are talking today on the first day of voting in Ohio. Uh, Early voting is open. Um, So I guess I want to just put it to you. What's your big picture pitch to why voters need to get out there and vote and specifically with the focus on health and health care? Like what are the stakes for this election um, in health and health care from your perspective?
1: Oh, I mean, this the stakes could not be greater for this election. And and certainly everyone should exercise their right to vote so that their opinions and their beliefs and their values can be counted through this democratic process. You know, as it relates to to health care, I think at the national level, People have a really robust understanding of the policies that the federal government uh, is able to enact or dismantle that impact our our health and access to healthcare. But you know, I would submit to you that state elections are just as equally as important when it comes to addressing health and healthcare of our Ohioans. I mean. In the legislature, we deal all the time with how we administer federal regulations involving access to health care, you know, whether or not we take money from the federal government to expand Medicaid, whether or not we um, use CARES Act funding to support the health of our, of our communities, um, how we administer those funds, what kind of policies we make, you um, you know everything that happens at the federal level, uh, in the macro, happens at the state on the micro. And I would submit that even even more so uh, when it comes to local policies being able to impact you know health outcomes and uh, how healthy our communities are, how the state does its budget, how they create their priorities, it all plays into what kind of health our state has.
0: You know, and it's a real problem. So as a political scientist, you know, when I was teaching bona fide political science courses, I teach health policy now. But, you know, every four years, students kind of plug in and get excited around a presidential election. And then they often drift away during those other years. Um, And that's a big problem because they often don't realize, you know, it's like the state doesn't register on, uh, on their list of priorities enough. They don't realize that. And in a way, they're, you know, following these shiny objects on the national level and they're missing the real story.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And I think, you know, we have, I think, a pretty good understanding of there's a lot of conversation about the Supreme Court and Uh, how that will impact potentially women's right to access abortion care based on decisions that the Supreme Court makes. Um, The state at every level has more control over whether women are able to access abortion care And somehow that is really missed on why state elections really matter and truly have an impact on, you know, care just in that one regard. But certainly in in every other aspect, you know, I think with this pandemic, we are starting to realize how social determinants impact your health and your health outcomes. And the state has so much play over, you know, what affordable housing looks like, what quality air looks like, what, you know, whether or not homes have lead paint abatement, Um, all of those things are intersected with our health. And the state plays a critical role in, in making sure or ignoring those issues.
0: So you you kind of hit on an issue that I was going to get to. Let's turn to it now, then, because um, there's a few of them that are just right in front of us. You know, with the death of Justice Ginsburg, uh, a woman's right to choose is certainly uh, hanging by a thread on the federal level. Uh, yeah. We now know that the nominee who's being considered uh, is on record. Um, she wants uh, this is uh, Judge Amy Coney Barrett is on record as wanting to repeal Roe versus Wade. She thinks it was wrongly decided. Here in Ohio, Ohio right to life is over the moon about yep. this, with the possibility that this could happen. I guess I wanna know, let's assume the worst for a moment that this does in fact come to pass, and it's hard to think about, but it's our job to think about it. Um, what can happen on the state, and I'm also keeping in mind, I mean, you're the assistant minority leader in the Ohio House, mm-hmm. and minority parties don't run the show, <laughs> but what can you do? What can we do, and what conversations should we all be having on the state level to kind of prepare for this eventuality?
1: Well... First, I'm not going to say that I think it's a foregone conclusion that this is going to happen.
0: Right. This was a thought experiment more than anything because, <laughs> so, you know, preparing. But yeah, I, I, I seed your point.
1: But I think that, you know, to, to your point, you know, what can we do to make sure that we are Um, fighting back against these encroachments on women's right to choose, whether they're coming from, um, you know, who we're appointing to the Supreme Court or whether they're coming from the Ohio legislature itself. And, you know, first and foremost, we have to end gerrymander districts. And that's on the table this year. That is going to... um, be one of the first things that this legislature does in 2021. And I will tell you that electing Democrats this year and at least getting us to the point where we are not in the super minority will have an impact on the process for um, doing those redraw of those lines. Additionally, you know, our Supreme Court elections this year are really going to impact our ability to draw fair districts. Uh, next year. And so that is absolutely number one, the first thing we need to do to make sure that we have a Supreme Court bench in Ohio that's elected, and we have a General Assembly in Ohio that's elected that reflects Ohio's values. And I think once we can make sure that that is intact, then we have a good guard to make sure that these extreme uh, policies that encroach upon women's right to choose will not be able to be successfully brought in Ohio.
0: Yeah, Roe versus Wade is one of those issues that even though, as I mentioned, Ohio Right to Life and and some of your colleagues in the legislature and and certainly the governor uh, are not, you know, supporters of abortion rights, that actually it's pretty popular. I mean, there's a majority of people, even in Ohio, who, you know, even if they have mixed views about where to draw the line and exactly what the law should be, they support a woman's right to choose on some level in a way that doesn't get reflected. And that's what gerrymandering does, right? It it makes things less democratic.
1: Yes, no, that's exactly it. I mean, I think that, you know, it's like any other issue. There's a spectrum of where people Fall and there are certainly some people in Ohio who don't believe that there should be any exceptions to abortion. Majority of Ohioans believe that there should be some exceptions and some reasonable timelines. And then there are people who believe that um, it should always and only be up to a woman and her doctor to have access to that type of care. And I will say the majority of Ohioans think that there should be an exception for rape and incest, um, that there should be an exception for a a non-viable fetus, that there should be an exception for uh, mental health and uh, life of the mother. And so, you know, when we talk about where the legislature is on these issues, you know, one of the things about when we passed the six-week ban uh, in Ohio, I stood on the floor and I shared a story of when I was working at the Ohio Attorney General's office. Uh, we had a crime victims claim of a 13 year old girl. I can't even call her a young woman because you are a girl when you are 13. Became pregnant through rape. She would have delivered the baby when she was 14, and she didn't know if. The person that she conceived the child with was her father or her brother because they had both been raping her for years. Now, that is an exception that I cannot walk down the street and find many Ohioans that don't support her right to end that pregnancy if that is her choice. And the legislature act, they voted against that. They acted as if that should not be uh, an exception, that that should not be a, a viable exception to the six-week ban. And, you know, we lost that battle on the floor. And I think that that is really reflected of, you know, how bad gerrymandering is in Ohio when you have this legislature that can just enact abhorrent legislation and, and get away with it because they are never in fear of losing their losing their races and not being reelected
0: yeah there have to be stakes for the policy positions you take as a legislator and gerrymandering makes it really hard I mean right now we're looking at a few races potentially that could flip in Ohio that a yeah. lot of great candidates are working hard a lot of them have been on this show and care a lot about health care yes. but it is unfortunate it, it, I mean, in 2016 uh, I'm sorry in 2018. If we didn't have a gerrymandered state to this degree, probably uh, you'd even be closer to breaking that supermajority.
1: Oh, for sure, for sure.
0: So uh, you are the assistant minority leader. We've also spoken with your colleague, uh, leader Sykes. Yeah. Um, uh, when when you are when the Democrats uh, were. Talking about this declaration of racism as a public health crisis, right. um, you know, I'm here in Grandview. Our city council, you know, w- was able to pass through um, a similar resolution, and other municipalities have. We have not been able to do this on the state level. Right. Um, I-, I wanted to talk a little bit about that and some components of how that. You know, I mean, that's that's not gone. That's still an important issue. People are still yeah. out there talking about it. But, um, you know, what are some of your priorities with that? And how do you see that being an important issue in the campaign? Just the inability to even declare this thing uh, that seems so obvious to so many um, right. to be important?
1: Right. So I think, you know, I, I certainly feel for my colleagues that have been, um, you know, fighting for this issue for, for such a long time. And it's, it's an acknowledgement of where we are at in society right now. Um, you know we've received some pushback that you know merely declaring racism as a public health crisis, you know what does it do? What does it actually uh, contribute to having better health outcomes for our minority populations? But it is it is the first step in acknowledging what part of the problem is. and it's been really discouraging, that there are many of our colleagues in the legislature that just don't even want to have the conversation about race and the intersections of health. And I think, you know, for for a lot of us we can very clearly see that, you know, racism has a significant interplay with social determinants that have negative health outcomes so you know it plays into what your socioeconomic status is where your housing is what kind of air quality you breathe what is even more frustrating though is what we know from just looking at the data that racism has a role in negative health outcomes regardless of economic status you know we know that black mothers regardless of income are four times more likely to die In childbirth than white mothers. Mm -hmm. And until we can acknowledge that this is just about intentional or unintentional biases that we don't fully appreciate or understand, we can't really do work to solve that problem. And that's a problem. 14 out of 100,000 women that are black die in childbirth. Yeah it that is unfathomable to me in the united states it should be 0
0: <laughs> yeah and i would encourage you know listeners can go look at what that means what that data means when you look at a comparative chart to other countries i mean it, it puts us on par within that demographic with within that racial disparity with countries that most americans would think we are so much more developed and so much uh, you know further along with that than than they they, they would want to accept
1: right exactly um,
0: um, I wonder if we can talk a bit about uh, you know you've you've been uh, involved in also some of the policing aspects of this and you've spoken out about that as well and I know this is a this is a, a conversation that's ongoing in our area and clearly as you and I were talking before we started recording you know almost every issue is to some degree a health issue right now sure and and that's part of this question of policing you played a role in supporting some legislation concerned with mental health and de escalation training and things like that but yeah. how do you see this criminal justice reform or policing question as part of this broader because this is a very tangible policy area aside from the symbolic potentially symbolic area of a declaration
1: well I think that you know for I, I think we even have to go one step further back and just acknowledge that we still can't study gun violence right um, and we can't actually have meaningful studies on on what the impact and health outcomes are of, of gun violence are on our communities and our neighborhoods, even though I think everyone understands that gun violence disproportionately impacts communities of color. And I don't think it's any secret to say that we know that the majority of Uh, deaths that have been involved with police officer shootings have been of people of color. And, you know, until we can really examine these issues and acknowledge that they exist because we have the data to demonstrate what we know to be true, it's really difficult to, to tackle these issues. And so, you brought up some of the legislation that I've been working on with, you know, requiring de-escalation training. Um, I also supported legislation that would prevent tear gas from being used uh, against uh, protesters or crowds. Uh, you know, these, these are chemicals that have been banned by our war tribunals. They are not allowed to be used during war, but we can use them on our own grounds against our own people.
0: Including our Congress members and city council members uh, very notably.
1: It makes, we have to be able to say that there's a better way to do this and we have to be able to say that there's a better way to do this and not be portrayed as anti-police or anti-anything. Like this is just about what is the best policy and what is the best way to keep everyone safe? You know, not only the people who are exercising their First Amendment rights, but the people who are are down there on, on the officer side of things as well. And so, you know, I think that they there are just so many opportunities for us to to really make better policy and find that balance between, um, you know what people are able to do to exercise their First Amendment right and what we are able to do to keep our community safe and our streets safe.
0: Do you think we depend too much on police and this kind of traditional police model for things that actually are, More in the area of health, mental health, um, you know, this kind of thing. Is there a disaggregation we can do where we start to think, okay, well, you know, we, we may need police officers for this, and this is their training, this is their focus, but we need to diversify the kind of personnel we bring to bear on complex social issues. I mean, is that part of your thinking as well?
1: Oh, absolutely. I mean, I think we ask our police officers to do a tremendous amount of work that is beyond what would normally be considered community policing. And, you know, I think, for example, um, Ohio Health has has really started looking into this in terms of, you know, what do we do to address, you know, people who are having a mental health breakdown? You know, they are Oftentimes, the ones that are intersecting with the police when a mental health breakdown occurs, you know, it would be naive of us not to acknowledge that there are certain times when somebody that's having a mental health breakdown poses a danger to themselves and potentially a danger to people around them. But is it appropriate for them to to go to jail? Is it appropriate for them? Are they going to get the best care um, if they just go to to that sort of situation? Or should they be going to a hospital? Should they be going to a medical care setting uh, where they can get the proper care and treatment? And you know to ask our police officers to constantly make those decisions, is really difficult. You know, those are people that should be, you know, social workers and doctors and part of a managed care team for for those people who are known to have issues. And unfortunately, a lot of those people just continue to have the police called on them and we don't have the appropriate resources to to treat them and handle those situations in the best way. And I mentioned Ohio Health at the beginning of that answer because you know they are an organization that I see trying to to work on that solution from the healthcare end and having dedicated space in their emergency room for officers to bring uh, people who are having a mental health breakdown to them instead of taking them directly to, to the jail downtown. And, you know, that is what we need more of, but it is, it is costly and it's difficult. And we need officers to have the training so that they can identify when it's appropriate to take someone to a specialized ER that can handle their case versus taking them downtown and booking them in jail.
0: You know, like so many things that we've talked about on this show, and that I teach, you know, in my capacity as a, a medical school professor, it requires a, a different way of thinking too. I mean, I think that I've seen this with the opioid issue, for example. I've talked to sheriffs who have said, you know, I had to learn how to be a different kind of sheriff. I mean, the things yeah. they were taught in, you know, their formal training are not the things that they need to address this issue. And in a way, uh, there's a, a a kind of moment where they have to think differently about what it even means to be something like a law enforcement professional, just like physicians are learning things. And, uh, and other teachers certainly have had to learn this over the years as well, that being a teacher is not just about teaching things. It's also about providing this emotional support yeah. for people who are not getting it. So, yeah, I, w- I wonder about, you know, how, how we make that move. But I, I, I certainly know that a lot of people ask us on this show about how we can think about that more within a public health frame.
1: Well, and I think that that is, you know, the key that you sort of just hit on is we have to start thinking about it in the public health frame. You know, we we see law enforcement as public safety and we don't always do a good job of thinking about it as public health. And what I think, you know, this pandemic and this social unrest that we've seen throughout the pandemic has, I think highlighted is that there's so much interconnectivity between public safety and public health and having the, the right person to triage that particular issue is critical and helping to have a better outcome.
0: Yeah. And certainly, uh, as we've seen, public health has become uh, fairly politicized. We have the well-known stories here in, in Ohio around, you know, Director Acton and trying to have a full-time uh, permanent replacement in that position. Um, and hopefully one of the things we can do over the next couple months is also tone that down a little bit and think about what it is we need to do.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
0: Now I know we're a bit over time, but I do want to make sure we hit on one last point, which sure. is you've been talking about, thinking about, um, and addressing this this rise in domestic violence fatalities we've seen, as well as yeah. child abuse during the pandemic.
1: Yeah,
0: and we've we've talked a lot on this show about those uh, issues, but also more recently we talked about suicide and the kind of nexus of gun violence, suicide. Just thinking about these kinds of phenomena and how they are interacting with our present moment, but also not just the present moment, not just the pandemic. These were issues before as well in our state. So um, wh- what are you working on with that? What do you hope to achieve in the next term? Uh, and what what kind of things are within reach to actually do?
1: Thank you for that question, Dan. I think what has what been disheartening, but also at the same time gives me hope, is there were so many different angles of policy that we were working on as it related to Um, helping to end violence against women that I just now it becomes so much clearer that if we would have been able to do this before the pandemic, we would have been seeing, I think, some better outcomes as it relates to the increase in domestic violence and the increase in domestic fatalities and child abuse throughout um, our state. And so, you know, a few of the things that I I think that um, we have been pushing for uh, before the pandemic hit were, were things that were just sort of again, things that seem kind of obvious good policy, um, you know, declaring strangulation a felony instead of a misdemeanor. You know, we know that a woman who is strangled is seven times more likely to be killed um, by the person that's abusing her. And had we done that before this pandemic, I believe that we would have been able to separate more permanently some of these offenders that are continuing to abuse and administer physical violence against their partners. Um, And unfortunately, uh, we've been slow to the call to do that. We're one of the last states to recognize that uh, strangulation should be a felony. And because of that, we have a lot more dangerous people still living in the home and still exercising that type of abuse against their partners. One of the things that I have been working on with Dr. Ortiz, who is our Franklin County coroner is, uh, she has put together a domestic fatality review task force that is very similar to the child fatality review task force. Um, And essentially it's a uh, working group of all intersections of those who, uh, try to support domestic violence victims and address domestic violence. So you have law enforcement, you have the Ohio Domestic Violence Network, you have social workers, you have psychologists, and you have the coroner's office. Um, but what we've realized is because their task force hasn't been blessed by the state per se, um, they can't really share information because as soon as they share information, they give up their privilege of keeping that information confidential from the public. And Mm. so if you have a law enforcement officer that has an ongoing case that has um, someone who's known to be violent against women, he or that officer can't necessarily share that information without it becoming public. And so we're trying to legislatively give them the protections that they need so that they can uh, meaningfully share information with each other to take a group approach to addressing these issues. And so that's been the most latest thing I've been working on. But as October is domestic violence awareness month, I think it's important for us all to sort of acknowledge and recognize how hard it has been um, for survivors of domestic violence to, to have endured this pandemic and this quarantining and this isolation um, with potentially having to share custody or share housing um, or share resources with someone that has been abusing them. I just, I can't imagine um, how much this pandemic has exacerbated that anxiety and that stress and that violence for, for those women.
0: In so many ways, it's it, it's kind of put under a, a microscope, but also magnified uh, problems that were simmering already, that were already exactly. out there. I mean, I think exactly. about, you know, there's two different sides of the same coin here, loneliness during the pandemic and isolation, and then the phenomenon you're talking about, which is being uh, subjected to domestic violence and kind of being stuck, right, in, in those situations. And I, I think, you know, uh, we, we are, we've only started to realize the long-term consequences of, of what we've been through.
1: Well, and I think, you know, it's also really important to acknowledge that this pandemic has been particularly devastating for women's economic security. I mean, this is the uh, first economic downturn we've had in fifty years, where more women have lost their jobs than men. You know, in the U.S., mm-hmm. I know we have one point five million women that have been laid off since February versus nine million men. Um, and it's not even just the layoffs; it's the fact that when you look at those jobs that women have lost because of the the pandemic nearly about 60 65% of that workforce comes from the 40 lowest paying jobs in the United States. And so when you have that economic devastation for women, that not only makes them vulnerable for losing their health care and not being able to to have secure housing, but it it really pushes them back to unhealthy relationships, people who may have abused them in the past, that in and of itself exacerbates what we're seeing in the domestic violence space. Because when women don't have options, and the only um, source of support that they can turn to is someone that has violently abused them, sometimes that's the decision that they're forced to reconcile.
0: Yeah. Well, I mean, these are um, amazingly important issues. And sometimes when I, when I'm on the show, I feel like it's so important to call attention to these challenges, to these really just horrible situations that so many people are in. Um, But I also, you know, try to at least find some, like, I'll say silver lining for lack of a better term, but (laughs) something we can look to, to be hopeful. I mean, obviously on a day when voting opened in our state, that's kind of what we have. We have yeah. this possibility of, of doing better and, and 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 dislodging some of these these forces that you've kind of pointed to. but also there are some very concrete things you've talked about there that are doable even in this political climate. so I think it's really important for legislators to keep finding those things.
1: no I think I think we can bring it back full circle to. Uh, the beginning of this conversation when we said this is exactly why it's important for everyone to exercise their right to vote and have their voice heard this year. You know, I find that every election we are prone to saying this is the most important election, but really, this is the <laughs> most important election.
0: <laughs> right. If, right. If, if you want to make fun of that statement, then tell me which one's more important. Right, <laughs> and Get into some details.
1: Exactly.
0: Representative Kristen Boggs, I want to thank you so much for taking time to chat and um, we look forward to talking forward as we as we go into the next year.
1: Well, appreciate uh, you inviting me to be here today and um, look forward to further conversations.
0: My thanks to Representative Kristen Boggs for joining me on the show. You can read more about Representative Boggs by checking out her legislative and campaign websites, which we'll be linking to in the show notes. Those links will be on WCBE's webpage at wcbe.org under the podcast experience tab, but also on our website at prognosisohio.com. Before closing, I just want to put in one more plug for the live event we'll be holding on Facebook on October 20th. Please like Prognosis Ohio on Facebook to learn more about the event, which will be held on Facebook from 7 to 830 on the 20th. And will be featuring the chairman of the Ohio Democratic Party, David Pepper, as well as a host of great guests, including some experts on reproductive politics in Ohio and a bunch of candidates for state and federal office. We hope to see as many of you there as possible. Prognosis Ohio is hosted by me, Dan Skinner, and produced by Dan Skinner and Mark France. Please take a minute to subscribe to the show, follow us on Twitter at, at @PrognosisOhio, friend us on Facebook, and check out our new website at prognosisohio.com. Next week, we'll be talking with friend of the show and Medicaid expert Lauren Anthus of the Center for Community Solutions, who will bring us some hot takes on the sweeping changes that are underway in Ohio's Medicaid program. Please subscribe to the show so you don't miss it. Until next time, thanks for listening and be well.